My name is Chris Wilson. I'm the pastor here, and we're going to be continuing our study in Philippians tonight. If you have your Bibles with you, either in physical copy or in digital on your phone, you can go ahead and get those going. Uh, we're going to be in Philippians 2, verses 12 through 30 tonight as we continue to unpack Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. If you need a Bible, there are some on the table over here to my left and your right. You're welcome to take one. Uh, you can take a pen and make some notes in it, and then you can take that Bible home as a gift from us to you. Rugged individualism, as Wikipedia defines it, is a term that indicates the virtuous ideal where an individual is totally self-reliant and independent from outside assistance. And if we're honest, this has been the default mode of living and striving in our society since the early part of the 20th century when the phrase was first coined. And if we're even more honest, in our day, social media has served as an accelerant on the fire of this rugged individualism where we can draw back, we can isolate ourselves, we can only allow ourselves to be known to the degree that we choose to be exposed. Some overexposed, some underexposed, few of us very, very rarely get it just right as far as how to navigate the social media waters. Anyway, if you hang around here long enough, you'll find that social media and I have a really interesting relationship. But my, my contention for us is that these philosophical and technological changes, if we're honest, give us, make us really bad at giving and receiving encouragement. We've traded likes and smiley faces and hearts and comments for the ability for another person to look across a table at us, know us deeply and intimately, and offer us encouragement. I encouragement that lasts is going to be born out of relationships that are full of deep love and vulnerability. This encouragement that lasts comes from spending time together face-to-face, -to -face, not screen-to-screen. -screen. Lasting encouragement comes from relationships where each party in humility counts the other as more significant than themselves. Encouragement that sticks with us for the long haul comes out of relationships where each party is looking to the interest of the other, not just their own. As we look at the next part of Paul's letter to the Philippians this afternoon, we see Paul encouraging these men and women of the faith to continue in their walk with Christ. And it's encouragement that lasts because Paul knew the Philippian believers. It wasn't just platitudes thrown out like it was a Hallmark greeting card. Paul's writing to encourage them because of the deep love he has for them that comes from just knowing them as well as he does. Let's pray. Father, we admit that the allure of being a rugged individual suits our sinful souls well. It plays on the idea of the lie that Satan told our first parents in the garden that we can be God. That we need nobody else. That we have no need for outside help or influence. There's only one who's ever existed who's had no need for another and it's you, Father. And so, Father, e even now, would you begin to break down what in each of us to varying degrees are the walls of our individualism? The walls that cause us to sit in a room like this tonight and feel alone, not because people don't want to know us, but because we just don't really know that we want to be known. But we need to be known because we need encouragement. We need specific encouragement to our hearts and to our lives. And we cannot get it 
through Instagram posts. We cannot get it through tweets. We cannot get it through Facebook rants. It comes from sharing life together. It comes from laughing together. It comes from crying together. It comes from being exposed in our sin together. And it all centers around the finished work of you, Christ. So would you knit our hearts together as a community of believers who rally around the gospel and who enjoy the encouragement that really is ours as part of our inheritance as your sons and your daughters. In Christ's name, amen. Paul writing in Philippians, I want to read all of this and then we're just going to go through and unpack it bit by bit. I'll read all uh, 12 through 30 of chapter 2. Paul writing says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now... Not only is it my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with the Father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that, I, that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. We're going to cover this in two sections, 12 through 18, and then 19 through 30. If we go back and you look at the first part of Philippians 2.12, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. When Paul writes that, it draws our attention back to Philippians 1.27, where Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And then if you drop down to 2.13, Paul says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And this draws us all the way back to Philippians 1.6, where Paul says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Paul, at the front end of verse 12 and in verse 13, pulls us back into earlier parts of the letter where he's written essentially the same thing, just a different way. If I'm with you or I'm not with you, I want your life to reflect the fact that you've been changed by the gospel. My hope is in this, that God who started it is going to be the God who finishes it. But in the last part of verse 12, Paul drops in a clause that seems to drive even a wedge between his own thoughts because this is what Paul says at the end of verse 12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 
what Paul does is Paul leverages every bit of influence and relational capital he has with the Philippians to encourage them to be working out their own salvation with fear and trembling. If we're honest, often in, in our zeal today for being gospel-centered, meaning the gospel is the center of everything we do, it gives shape and direction to our life. If we're honest, we sprint so hard towards gospel-centeredness that we sometimes wrongly remove the weight of what it means to be a Christ follower. We move so quick to the assurance of the gospel, and the assurance of the gospel is the anchor that holds us steady. But we can go so quick in that direction that we bypass the weightiness that should sit on us from time to time of what it means to know and to love and to follow Christ. This, though, is not the case for Paul. Paul is strategic in where he places the command for the Philippian believers to work out, work out their salvation with fear and trembling. Paul, I believe, knew that if he put the command of working out their salvation before the reminder that they had already been obedient, it would crush their resolve, making them feel like abject failures in their already weakened state and doubts about their ability to maintain their Christian witness. So he cannot put it before then, or it feels like an undue burden that will do more to break their spirit than encourage their spirit. But Paul also, I believe, knew that if he put it after the truth, that it is God who's working in them to will and to work according to his good pleasure— then perhaps he ran the risk of encouraging the Philippians to become very hands-off as it regarded their ongoing growth in the gospel. It reminds me of a shirt that used to be for sale. Before there was stuff Christians like and before there was Babylon B, there was a satire Christian news site called Lark News. And they had two shirts that I really wish I would have bought. One said, I heard you got into that Christian college. Bummer. Um, which I thought was very funny. And the second one said... Bloom where you're planted, stay mediocre, see you in heaven. And that's what Paul's trying to avoid by not putting the work out your salvation with fear and trembling behind the truth that it's God who's going to will and to work in you to bring it about. He didn't want them to arrive at a place of complacency with their faith. Paul wanted and he needed the Philippians and us to feel the weight of being committed to Christ and his gospel. Paul elevates and lets sit in tension two things that we cannot resolve from our perspective. It is the idea of man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. We've spent more time trying to figure that out than I think even Paul gave thought to in his life. Paul just wrote it because he knew it was true. He knew that these two things had to reside side by side in the life of a believer. Man is responsible for how they live their life, but God is sovereignly going to bring those who have trusted Christ safely home. We just have to live with that tension. We are human. We can't explain it. But Paul places this command there for the Philippians about working out their salvation so that the first part of verse 12 and verse 13 would serve as guardrails for the Philippians and for us so that we wouldn't adopt a spirit of legalism on one side of error or a spirit of indifference on the other side of error as it concerns our sanctification or growth in Christ's likeness. Paul puts it there strategically. Like a surgeon, it is precise in how it's written so that it achieves maximum 
impact in the listeners and in us. We, too, should be able to look back and draw encouragement from past faithfulness in our own lives and in the lives of others. That's where Paul starts verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. Paul is not writing that they have been perfect since they became believers. Paul writes to encourage them that the overarching trajectory of their life is towards more disciplined obedience to the things of the faith. And it's the same for us. We need to be able to look back and draw encouragement from the times that we have been obedient. That we have listened, that we have put aside our sinfulness, that we have put aside the things that we did before we were believers and we've embraced the sacrifice that comes from following Christ. We also need to be reminded of the promise of God's working in us through both our will and our actions. It's God working in us that has not only made past faithful obedience possible, but it also makes present and future obedience the expected norm in the life of the believer. As you grow in your faith, as the Philippians were growing in their faith, as we grow in our faith, it should become more and more of a normal thing for us to see obedience marking our lives. This is not to say there won't be struggles with sin, there won't be struggles with disobedience. I'm saying that what Paul wants us to feel the weight of is if you're going to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, you should see increasing levels of obedience in your walk with Christ. The NIV Study Bible provides some much-needed help in understanding what we mean by our working when it says this, Our actions as Christians are not part God and part us, Rather, we can act because God is acting in us. This is not God does some and we do some and we kind of try to do this 50-50 thing where God's done his part. It's where we get bad theology like God helps those who help themselves. False. God helps those who don't try to help themselves, who admit that they can't help themselves and give up trying and allow God to be God in their life. If you read this wrong, you end up splitting the effectiveness of God's care for you by trying to take on part of it as your responsibility. Our working is not part God and part us. It's all tied up in the fact that we can act only because God is acting in us. So it is that these two truths, past obedience and a present awareness of God working through us, need to serve and should serve as an encouragement for us to keep working out our salvation. And when possible, we need this encouragement to come from others who are walking out their faith in community with us. The encouragement, when possible, needs to come from the people you're walking out your faith in community with in the local church, in a small group, in one-on-one -on -one discipleship time. This is where the encouragement needs to come because if we're honest, we often oversell our past faithfulness and undersell our future faithfulness. We often oversell how good we used to be and we undersell how obedient we think we can be in the future. And so we need the grace of the outside voices who are living life with us to speak encouragement into our lives. 
And this is also true because it's those in our community who should be the primary beneficiaries of our working out our salvation. Moises Silva, in his commentary on Philippians, says, The outworkings of the believer's personal salvation take the form of corporate obligations within the Christian community, the duty of seeking the good of others. To work out your salvation is not to retreat into a rugged individualism. It is to be pushed out into loving acts of service that seek the good of others that reflect the character of Christ who did not retreat from himself but came and gave himself as a means to bless and benefit others. We take our lead from our Savior and so it is that our working out our salvation always, always, always has a communal effect even though it is our own salvation that we are working through. So Paul says, work it out because the person beside you needs your commitment to being growing in your relationship with Christ. It carries with it really the idea that somehow, some way in God's design of how the church operates, that you're working out your salvation with fear and trembling in community has a direct effect on my ability to experience the grace and the goodness and the truths of the gospel in their fullness. And so it means being known. It means being cared for. It means being vulnerable. It means really living into and living out your faith. Edward Steichen was a world-renowned photographer in the early to mid-20th century. If you don't know him, that's fine. I didn't know him either until I looked this up. At the age of 16, his parents bought him the uh, necessary means in the early 1900s to be able to take 50 photos, which was not a cheap endeavor then. No such, there were no cell phones, none of that, not even a Polaroid. Out of the 50 photos he took, only one was a keepable photo. It was a portrait of his sister at the piano. His dad disapproved, thinking that 49 out of 50 failures meant he should pursue something else. But his mother thought that the one good photograph more than made up for the 49 failures. So it is that Edward Steichen stuck with photography because in the end his mother saw excellence in the midst of failure. So it is that we must be the ones who help other believers see their growth in the gospel even in the midst of theirs and our own ongoing struggles with sin and disobedience. The mark of a healthy believer is not one who is always critical of his brothers and sisters. The mark of a healthy believer is one who can see 50 sins and know that they're bad and know that they need to be confessed of, but can find it in them to encourage them, to encourage the other believer in the one thing that they got right. So many people flatline or stagnate in their growth because when they meet with other believers, there's no spirit of encouragement. There's no spirit of mutual edification. There is this morbid sense of self-mutilation and self-humiliation. Look, you need to be confessing your sins to Christ and confessing them to others as a means of accountability. I'm never going to tell you not to do that. That's just healthy. But that's part of a healthy diet. Just like the food pyramid, 
There's a healthy diet for a believer. And part of the healthy diet of being a believer in community is allowing and speaking encouragement to one another. Not always harping on the wrong, but helping others see their growth in the gospel, even in the midst of their own and our own struggles with sin and disobedience. And I bet if you were to look back in the next week over the course of your life, the moments where you saw great increase in your walk with Christ, where you saw great growth in your faith, were times that you were not only able to be honest about your sins, but you were closely connected to someone who could speak truth to the obedience that they saw in your life. And that's what Paul's advocating for the Philippians to do. Then Paul goes on and he says this, and this is one of those where you're like, Paul, you really have to put this in there, but 14's there, so here we go. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Paul brings it to the Philippians' attention, lest they run off in the wrong direction, that the working out of their salvation must be done without grumbling or disputing. For this, as Paul goes on to say, is the mark of the blameless and innocent children of God who are without blemish. Paul wants the Philippian believers to understand that they must do the God-fearing and Jesus-honoring work of the gospel with the right attitude. Right things done in the wrong attitude can cease to be right things. Right actions done with the wrong attitude can cease to be good, loving, God-fearing, Jesus-honoring actions. And so when Paul says do everything without grumbling or disputing, what he means is this. We grumble against God when we think that he's asking us to do something that we consider beneath ourselves. And we dispute with God when we think that we don't need the help he's sending our way. We grumble against God when he asks us to do something that we consider beneath ourselves, and we dispute our need for help when God sends it our way. Because this was not all tilted towards just those who were going to be acting in faith towards another believer. It was to keep the two-way street of mutual encouragement open. You can't grumble and you can't dispute. You've got to be willing to give encouragement and you've got to be willing to receive encouragement. You cannot be one who actively is healthy in a church if you're only ever giving and never receiving or you're only ever receiving and never giving. You burn the people around you out. Healthy Christian community depends on those of us who call ourselves Christians not grumbling and not disputing, but remaining open to both giving and receiving the encouragement we all need in the gospel. If they do this, then Paul gives such beautiful imagery. He says they're like stars, this is me paraphrasing, they'll be like stars against the night sky. They will stick out like beacons of gospel hope. And this this is exactly what the Israelites failed to do when Moses led them out of the exodus from Egypt. God's children, who had been in slavery in Egypt for 400 years, were rescued out of that slavery and oppression under Pharaoh, and they became the most grumble-filled nation walking the face of the earth. 
Exodus 16 is where some of this just comes into crystal clear focus. And Philip Ryken writes a devotional in this ESV men's devotional Bible about Exodus 16. And this helps encapsulate what Moses and the Israelites were feeling in those moments. This is Ryken's comment. The people complained that Moses made their job harder instead of easier when he came back and they had to make bricks without straw. They grumbled at the Red Sea where they accused Moses of bringing them out into the desert to die. The grumbling continued more or less for 40 years as they became a nation of malcontents. Our own complaints are not caused by our outward circumstances. Rather, they reveal the inward condition of our hearts. Israel's attitude is a warning against the great sin of complaining. Although they complained to Moses, they were really grumbling against God. By saying that it would have been better for God to let them die back in Egypt, they were really saying they wished they had never been saved. God knows that when we grumble, we are finding fault with him. A complaining spirit indicates a problem in our relationship with God. Close quote. Deuteronomy 32, 4 and 5, Moses writes and points out what this constant state of complaining did to the Israelites by comparing God's faithfulness on the one hand with Israel's unfaithfulness on the other. 32.4 is all about God's faithfulness, and then you'll notice the wording in verse 5. 30, Deuteronomy 32.4 and 5. The rock, God, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They, meaning Israel, have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer children because they are blemished. They are crooked. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Notice Paul's words. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Paul takes Moses' words in 32, 4, and 5, especially verse 5, and he flips them around and applies them to the church because Israel was to be a picture of who the church would be. Moses led the nation of Israel out of slavery and out of oppression under Pharaoh, but Jesus is the truer and better Moses who leads us out of a better exodus because he takes us out of bondage to Satan's sin and death, and instead of just removing us from a physical suffering, he gives us a new heart that moves us away from grumbling and disputing to faithful and trusting obedience. What Moses writes in 32.5, Christ redeems and reverses in his life and in his death and in his resurrection so that Paul could say, this used to be true of those who claim to be God's people. This is now true for you if you are God's people, that you are his children without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And you shine as lights in the sky. As the Philippians continued to mature in their faith, in their lives, by holding fast to the word of life, that is the gospel, they are going to learn what is expected of them as Christ's ambassadors. And then by God's work in and through them, they will strive to live it out. Paul says in 16, Hold fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I, not, I did not run in vain or labor in vain. 
Paul wants them to hold fast to the gospel. Paul wants them to hold fast to the truth of who Christ is and what Christ has done for them. He wants them to tighten their grip on the gospel and hold on to it while they loosen their grip on everything else that would seek to define them or distract them. The only way forward in sanctification and in joy is to hold on with all you've got to the word of life. Anything else you hold on to will let you down. And so Paul says, hold fast to the word of life. And why does he want them to do that? So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul encourages the Philippians that this is what gives him hope, that his work among them hasn't been in vain, that they would hold fast to the word of life, and that in the end, he will stand beside them on the day of the Lord, not ashamed, but proud of them and their commitment to hold fast to the gospel, regardless of what came their way. Paul says, part of my joy in seeing Christ face to face is your willingness and your commitment to hold fast to the word of life until we're back together again, maybe not on this earth, but before our Savior. And I want to rejoice with you in that moment that none of this was in vain. None of this was wasted time. None of this was wasted effort. All of it did what it was intended to do, and it's brought us here on the day of the Lord where we would stand unashamed before our Savior. And then Paul closes it out with this encouragement. And this is so, man, it's, it's life-giving good. 17, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul says that he, even if he is to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of their faith, he is glad and he rejoices with them all. What you would expect, I mean, if I'm writing this, I write that back, I write that the other way. I want the Philippians to be the drink offering on my sacrificial offering. Because the drink offering isn't the main part of the sacrifice. The drink offering in the Old Testament was meant to adorn and meant to sweeten and meant to bring out the beauty of the main sacrifice that had been offered. What Paul is doing is he's saying, don't look to me as the hero of your faith. I want everything that I've done. I will rejoice if all of my life is poured out as a drink offering to elevate and confirm your sacrificial acts of faith and love and obedience. Paul, when he could have written that he wanted their ministry to be what adorned his ministry, Paul takes the mindset of Christ, becomes their servant, and says, I'm willing to consider everything I've done as a drink offering on top of your faithful love and service and obedience. And it blows our minds because we would have got to that point, and I would have been like, and you are going to be the drink offering to my offering because I am the guy who's responsible. But Paul got it. He said, I'm not in this for me. I'll be the drink offering. I'll be the add-on to the primary offering of your life and your faith and your love if it will adorn and bring beauty and worth to the name of Christ. And so he's writing to encourage them. He wants to be poured out as a drink offering on their sacrificial offering of faith. 
And we, too, have to be willing to act on the commands of the gospel without grumbling or disputing. We have to make an internal commitment. We have to ask the Spirit to give us an internal resolve that our primary motive when asked to do things for the sake of the gospel is not to grumble or dispute. And this is so hard. This is hard because we can come in here and we can sing songs and we can nod and we can amen and we can take notes. But grumbling and disputing the work that God's called us to means, why does Paul need to write this? Here's why I think you have to put in there no grumbling or disputing, not only to allude to the Israelites. But I've yet to find a time where in my personal life, ministry was convenient. It's never convenient to be willing to take up your cross. It always happens when you're the busiest. It always happens when you're running the most behind. It always happens when you're burned out from work and you just need a day to yourself. Ministry is never about convenience. Ministry is always about sacrifice. The only reason Paul puts don't do this with grumbling or disputing is because Paul knows, Paul's lived, and we've all seen it in our life, ministry is never the path of convenience. Unless you're using ministry not as a means to adorn the work of our Savior, but if you're using ministry as a means to serve yourself then by all means, ministry will always be convenient because you will always put people in a position where they feel like they can never tell you no. But sacrificial service for the sake of the gospel almost always means that at some point, I'm going to have to not grumble, I'm going to have to not dispute, I'm going to have to take up my cross and deny myself and follow my Savior. And here's the wild thing that we know is true. Whatever the inconvenience, whatever we missed on, whatever didn't go the way we thought it would that day, if we're faithful to follow where the Lord's calling us to be obedient, we find that there is joy and there is ministry and there is goodness and there is love and there are a thousand things that we could not get if we plowed headlong in our stubborn selfishness all the days of our life. We must allow our actions and attitudes both to work together to adorn and magnify the beauty and goodness of our Savior. And when we do this, we find that rather than making it easier to blend into the surrounding culture, it inevitably causes us to stick out against the inky black backdrop of a world marred, broken, and decaying in sin. It does not lessen, rather it sharpens the edges of distinction around how much difference there really is between us and the world around us. It will make us uncomfortable. It may make us antsy as we begin to realize we have nowhere to hide our light. So we must hold out and hold firm to the truth of God's accepting us in Christ, the gospel, so that we would remain faithful until the day of Christ Jesus. Then we too will stand with the Philippians and Paul, enjoying our Savior and knowing we haven't ran our race in vain. And along the way, 
you get the chance to be the drink offering on someone else's offering. That's life to the fullest. That's life that the world tries to get myriad of other ways. But it's really only found through the way of our Savior. Then Paul does something that if you're reading this, and if you've been reading through Philippians, 19 through 30 seems real random. Like if, if you read it, and then like Adam is preaching 3-1, so I'm not even going to get into that. But when Adam, re- when Adam preaches 3-1 through 11 next week, you feel like 3-1 through 11 should be what's right after 2-18. So, but, but if you read 2-19 through 30, you read Paul's providing us the travel updates for Timothy and Epaphroditus. You're almost like, did he get up and like take a bathroom break and come back and forget where he was? And he was like, then let's wrap this one up. I got another letter to write. And he was like, oh, he gets and he's like, oh man, wait, I forgot. I need to blast people who are living like fools. And then he picks it up in 3-1. Look, I don't think Paul got distracted. I don't think this was a mistake. I think Paul intentionally puts these updates here because he wants to hold out two examples of men who not only are the embodiment of Philippians 1, 27 through 2, 18, but they are the antithesis of the men Paul will describe at the beginning of chapter 3. This isn't a mistake. This isn't where somebody was copying the letter later and they got distracted and moved this around. This is Paul intentionally putting in two men not named Paul as examples of those who are living out what he's talked about and pleading with the Philippians to live in too, and they serve as a stark, you could almost say like lights in the world. They stand out against the backdrop of the men that Paul will describe at the beginning of Philippians 3. We read it, and if you read about Timothy first in verses 19 through 24, you get the idea that the Philippian believers were expecting Timothy to be sent back to them. However, Paul says this isn't the case because of Timothy's value to Paul and his ministry. But hopefully, once Paul gets final resolution on his legal case, he'll be freed up to send Timothy back to the church at Philippi. And Paul's hope is that not long after, he'll be able to join Paul highlights, though, what makes Timothy's presence desired by the Philippians and valued by Paul himself when Paul says, For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with the Father he has served with me in the gospel. This is why the Philippian church wanted Timothy to come back to them. And this is why Paul was very hesitant to let Timothy go before Paul knew what his exact future was. Because this is what Timothy embodies. Timothy embodies Philippians 2, 4, which says, Let each of you look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. They wanted Timothy. They wanted Paul's son in the faith. But Paul needed to hold on to him just a while longer. And so in 25 through 30, Paul lets the Philippians know, and they would have known because Epaphroditus would have handed them the letter, that he was actually Paul's returning ambassador. Paul's tone, if read just for what it is, seems borderline apologetic. Like you hope Epaphroditus wasn't in the room when Paul was writing this. Like, hey, uh, sorry about Timothy, but here's my buddy Epaphroditus. He's not as good, but he'll have to do. But, Paul quickly points to his consideration of Epaphroditus as his brother, his fellow worker, 
and his fellow soldier. In other words, Paul wants the Philippian believers to see that Epaphroditus isn't a step backward. Rather, it's an equally qualified servant of the gospel. And after all, Epaphroditus was a local member of the Philippian church who has a strong desire to be back with those who he's lived his faith around and among the longest. And he wants to go back because he knows that they have become in some form or fashion distressed over his sickness. Paul says it's a sickness that was near to death. This mission to take Paul, this offering, had almost cost Epaphroditus his life. And Paul points to Epaphroditus being an embodied example of Philippians 2.8, which says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Epaphroditus, you don't know what maybe true standing he had in the Philippian church. But anyone traveling in the first century knew that travel was dangerous. You could pull rank, you could pull status, you could pull, I don't really want to go do that right now. Because you knew that, in a certain sense, to travel in the first century was to take your life in your own hands. But Epaphroditus had modeled humbling himself by becoming obedient, maybe even to the point of death. Paul wants the Philippians to see in Epaphroditus, not one who is less than Timothy or less than Paul. Paul wants them, rather, to see in Epaphroditus the truth of all that he has been telling them about their own obedience and progress in the gospel. Paul sends Epaphroditus back with a full commendation. Meant to serve as an encouragement to the Philippian believers, you're doing fine. You're doing so well that you don't need who you consider to be a super apostle to come back and babysit you. One of your own can come back. One of your own can model for you what this looks like. You don't need us because we may never make it back. You're capable, because of the Spirit in you, of living the life that you've been called to. Timothy and Epaphroditus serve as examples that point us to the truth that everything Paul has been encouraging the Philippians to become through working out their own salvation with fear and trembling is possible for us today. This isn't a first century pipe dream that died at the Industrial Revolution. Everything that Paul is after here is still to be expected and to be displayed in our life today. And we can oftentimes look at Paul and put his life so far out of reach that we go, why even bother? But then we have to contend with the likes of Timothy. And we can even make our way around Timothy's seemingly special status. But then we have to deal with the likes of Epaphroditus. And we run out of ways to go, this isn't for me. And we have to go, yes. Here are models. Here are people who were normal, everyday people living their life in faithful obedience to the gospel. Yes, God has given me and equipped me and given me through the Spirit, through His Word, through prayer, through the encouragement of a local body. He has given me all I need to live out the life that Paul has just given us in Philippians 1.27 through 2.18. We should be encouraged that living lives of faithful obedience to the gospel is possible. Those actually who have confessed Christ and been filled with the Spirit can and should live this life. And I think outside of that encouragement, I think it it leaves us to ask ourselves two questions. Paul refers to Timothy as a son with a father. He has served with me in the gospel. We must ask ourselves 
Who are the Timothys in our life that we are investing in with gospel intentionality? Paul was very aware of his mortality on earth. He did not hoard his experiences to move himself up some corporate apostolic ladder. He gave his life away so that the truths of the gospel would go on to the next generation. I think we at least have to pause here and ask ourselves, who am I investing in? I think the second question we have to ask is this. Who are the Epaphroditus in our life that we are learning from? Not the people with the podcast. Not the people with the book deals. Not the people with 2,000 member churches. Who are the faithful saints that are suffering for the sake of the gospel to the point of death that we could draw near to and learn from? Paul wants to be very clear to the Philippians and to us. You cannot live this life out in isolation. A healthy Christian life is lived in community. It's lived in a community where those advanced in the faith are giving their lives to invest in those who are younger in the faith. And it is marked by people who draw near to others in their suffering and in their questions and in their points of walking right up to death and they ask and they sit and they learn about what it is to hold fast to the word of life. The call to live in relationship with Christ is a call to work. As we pursue the working out of our salvation with the right attitude, seeking to be blameless and innocent, by holding fast to the word of life, may we find ourselves sticking out like stars in the night as beacons of light to a lost and dying world. May God use us, yes, you and me, in our acts of faithful obedience, to not only help others continue maturing in their faith, but that God would see fit to use our faithful obedience as a means to draw people to himself in saving grace. Let's pray.